I don't know, this might break your heart a little bit, but as we begin to transition here, we've been laying a foundation for a little bit, as we begin to transition to the next phase of this, and, and the last and final phase of this series, today might be a little shorter than normal, which means you might get out of here early. I hope that doesn't bother you too much. Uh, the other good news I have for you guys, I say that because I'm assuming that's good news for you, is this is the last week you had to hear me sing, so life is good again. Laura will be back next week, we'll be back to normal. Yes, please control yourselves, all right? Before I have to call security. So, we are going to jump right into this where we always do. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I know you didn't see that coming, so there's a surprise for you. It says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, here's the thing I want to get at today. We know, beyond a shadow of doubt, that this is God's work. Now, you should be able to at least have a conversation of why you believe that that is true, why you believe that this is inspired, how that you know it is inerrant, and how you know that you can put your faith in this, because otherwise it's just another book. You putting your faith in something does not make it true. Fair? Right? Just the reality of it. Your belief in something doesn't make it true or false. In the substance of itself is what makes something true and or false. So in this case, we have put our faith in this work. What has been unchanged through the centuries? This. What has been changed throughout the centuries? Man's opinion on this. Right? You see, when we look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, it says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What does it mean to not waver? It means to not waver. That's clever, right? You guys are impressed. See, if I were to write the attributes of God, like if I write God here, and I would ask you, describe God for me, okay? What is something, who is God? How would you describe him? Give me, not all at once. Yes, sir. Source of life. Source of life. I'm just going to put life because I write terrible. What's another one? Creator. Creator. That's a good one. I like that one. As you guys that have been muscling through Genesis with me knows I like that one. What's another one? He's loving. You have to come up with it. Forgive it. He's forgiving. Faithful. Healer. Did I hear awesome? I like that. He's awesome. Is it because Rich Mullins said he was awesome? That's a never mind. Anyway, what else? Yeah. He's mighty. Oh, that's a good one. Did I hear all-knowing? Which is the fancy word of omniscient. Word of, what? Authority? Did I not write that? I swear I did. Must not have. Authority. Anything else? Holy? Okay. That's good enough. Fair enough. Now here's a question for you. All right? These are all the attributes of God. How do you know? You ever thought about that? We make a lot of truth claims about God. How do we know any of them are correct? It comes back to the Word. You know nothing about God except through His Word. Now that gets under some people's skins. Because, well, I've experienced God. That's great. But how do you know your experience was real? 
How do you know your experience was true? You see, these mighty, all-knowing, authority, holy, loving, creator, life, forgiving, and faithful healer, all of these things we could go on and on and on and on and on about, right? We could, we could make a list a mile long. We could spend here all day coming up with a list of things about God. But you know what this is? None of these are God. These are the attributes of God. You know how we say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you will know a tree by its fruits. You guys know those verses? The same is true with God. His attributes is what flows, and those are the things that we put our faith in, unfortunately. Because we were discussing this this morning. You know, we look at healer, and this is a big one, and this is where we're turning our attention to healing. Because we need to know what God says on the matter, especially in today's day and age. But the problem we have is oftentimes we put our faith in healing and not the healer. But what does that tell us? Hold, fashion, hold fast to the confession of your hope without wavering. In other words, never doubting. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. We didn't put faithful up there. You see, it's not the promise. It's the source of the promise. I can promise you anything. I'll promise you today. Here we go. Here's one. This will be real easy for you. I today am going to write somebody a $1 million check. Are you excited? No. Why not? Because you can't catch it. You can't catch it. I'll write it. But you can't catch it. You can try. Just let's take up an offering for a little bail money when we get done. I mean, the thing is, is that we have been putting our faith into God's attributes instead of the source. It's like when they're trying to figure out what's wrong with you and you're sick or something like that, you go to the doctor. What do they do? They take a comparative sim- uh, of all the symptoms that are going on to come to the source of the problem. And the medicine doesn't usually treat the source immediately. It treats the symptoms to make it more uh, bearable as your body begins to fight this off, Right? And so, by putting these things together, we come up with something. Well, here, we have the description of the Creator, the loving God, the authoritative, all-knowing, mighty, awesome healer, and yet our faith is in this and not this. How do you know? Oh, because when you get sick, what do you do? Oh, when things look bleak, what do you do? Well, what we should do is we hold fast without wavering. Because our faith is in God. Is it fair to say that the church today, primarily, we have not truly put our faith in God? If you look at it, if we look upon ourselves, if we looked in the mirror and said, is my faith in God? A lot of times we'd have to say no. We don't want to. We don't want to admit to it. We'll say, oh no, my faith is in God and yada, yada, yada. But your actions don't line up. That's a problem. That's a problem. I mean, look at what's going on in the landscape of uh, politics today, right? Had all these prophets that came out and said something. And now we're sitting here at the forefront of a new administration. What happens? Did the prophets miss it? Maybe. Is something else going to happen? Maybe. You know where I'm at in it and where I've been? We'll see. But you know what, what doesn't change? God. You know what doesn't change? The mission of the church. Now, the ease of which we fulfill the mission of the church might have to change. The ease of which we have the ability to come together might change. But to be honest with you, that's not always a bad thing. Because frankly, we're way too comfortable. You see, what we've done is we've extracted the attributes of God 
And then we put these together into a cute little bundle over here and say, this is my God. But you know what we didn't put? Look at all these things. Are these not all good things? You know what we didn't put? We didn't put judge. We didn't put justice. We didn't put truth. We didn't put any of those things. Why? Because these are the attributes that feel good. But we've got to look at the entire character of who God is. Not just what He does. What He does is a result of the character of God Himself. So therefore, if this word, what we call our Bible, is a compilation of the very words of who God is, what He's done, and these are His words given to us, should we not believe all of them? Absolutely. And maybe we'll get there. But if we're being honest, we're not there. It's okay to not be there. What's not okay is to recognize it and ignore it. You see, we can continue playing games. We can continue going about our lives and living our comfortable lives and stuff like that. But what we can't continue to do is pretend like we're doing the Lord's work. Do you know how many times this, this just sticks in my crawl? I don't even know if I said that right. I'm not true Southerner, okay? But you'll hear somebody, we talk about sharing the gospel, right? Is that not a mission of the church? If you're a disciple of Christ, that is now your mission. Congratulations, you're in the team, okay? If you were a bench warmer in every sport in your entire life, congratulations, you're a starter now. Feels good, doesn't it? I'm talking to myself here, okay? But the thing is, is that when you live in a small town in a small area, they'd be like, well, you know, a prophet is not without honor in his own home. That's a great excuse. It doesn't change anything. That's an excuse. We make a lot of excuses. We justify our behavior. We do all of this stuff, you know. I mean, when you're young, and I'm not picking on you guys, this is just an analogy of young people. We'll, we'll take some time. We'll take our 15 minutes a day. We'll read our Bible if we're following after God. You know what we'll spend three hours doing? Social media, PlayStation, Xbox, whatever. Oh, but I put in my time. I read my three chapters. Priorities are screwed up. So where we're going and what we need to understand, and we're focusing our attention on healing, is that one of the primary problems we have today is our faith is in healing and not the healer. Thus, when healing does not seem to be coming, what do we do? We change the character of God. Well, maybe it's not His will. Maybe He doesn't heal today. We've got to look at that very carefully. We're going to begin to do that today. I want to show you this verse. This is something you guys all know. Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. It says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. We all know it. We have heard it so many times. So many times. My people are destroyed. Some versions say, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. Here's the problem. That's only the first line of the verse. Look at the whole thing. Because you have rejected knowledge. I will reject you from being a priest for me. Because you've forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Do you know what it means to reject knowledge? I know this is what you said, but let me tell you what you meant. Well, I know that might be true for you, but that's not true for me. See, to reject knowledge essentially means, are you ready for this? You're going to be dumb on purpose. You have chosen this isn't a lack of understanding. Is it fair that there is more facts and knowledge out there available than any time in human history? You can find anything in a matter of seconds. If I ask you a question, you could pull out your phone, go to the Google machine, and pull it up in seconds. 
I've told you guys before, but when I was growing up, I, was, I went through a phase of a little bit of skepticism because what I could not comprehend is what I'm taught in school and I never see anything crossing biblically. Like Moses, you got a bunch of Israelites that flee Egypt, but they're not in my history book. We're studying Egypt. At some point, you think it'd get brought up. Couldn't understand that. I couldn't understand why science is sitting there saying, well, wait, we came from nothing. And, you know, we were once a bunch of goo, and now look at you. You did well. And I'd go to my pastor, and I'd say, I'm confused. I don't understand. And you know what his response always was? You've got to have faith. Here's the thing. Faith isn't blind. We don't blindly believe these things just haphazardly. There is reality based in all of it. Now, it wasn't a lack of effort on his part. We didn't have the resources available to us that we have today. Today, you can know the truth about any subject if you don't first reject it. And the reality is, is that we have rejected this and created one of our own. You're not destroyed because you can't understand. You're, you're destroyed because you choose not to. That's where we are as a world today. Truth's in front of us, we choose not to see it. Now, as we have talked about, and we're going to get into this a little bit today, we're beginning to focus on healing. We've looked at that uh, verse uh, in Hebrews, that he who promised is faithful. We hold fast to our confession because he who promised is faithful. We began to look at all of the scriptures leading up to the birth of Christ, and I showed you some of the nuances last week inside of the, the Christmas story and the, the four messianic miracles and all of this stuff of how we know, like beyond a shadow of doubt, there's no way this happened on accident. Well, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 13, it says, Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you, be, uh, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So he said, I'm going to give you a sign. When a virgin gives birth to a baby and names him Emmanuel, that's your sign. Why'd they reject it? Was the knowledge not available? No, they chose not to see it. We see that come in Luke chapter 1. Look at her response. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be? I don't know a man. angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. There also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing is impossible. And then Mary said, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now here's the thing. You see, it's not a... Lack of understanding, she's confused. Now, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. And what is her response with? Let it be to me according to your word. I don't know a man. How can I possibly be pregnant? The angel gives her the ability, gives her the understanding. So was the verse in Isaiah chapter 7 true? Was the promise that God gave fulfilled? It was. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Did the nation waver throughout time? Oh, yeah. Are they still wavering today? Absolutely. But should they be? No. They should have never been. In fact, they should have recognized them. Why? Because this will be the sign. Here's the sign. Oh, he'll be born in Bethlehem and this, that, and the other thing. And then, and then what is here, in case you missed that sign, there will be these four messianic miracles that you can look at. This will give you an idea. This, that was rabbinic tradition, but it was, again, Jesus fulfilled all of that stuff. So then is it true that with God nothing is impossible? So is it possible for a virgin who's never known a man to give birth to a baby? It's possible. 
Is it possible that God can still move underneath the current regime that's supposedly going to go into power here in a couple of weeks? Absolutely. But why are we acting like the sky is falling? If anything, we deserve this. If anything, we've done this to ourselves. Maybe it's time to wake up. Side note. They were expected to recognize this, and because they didn't, in Luke chapter 19, we read about this, verse 41, it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now here's the question. Were they destroyed because they didn't know? Oh, they knew. They were destroyed because they refused to recognize it. You see, it wasn't simply a lack of knowledge. They rejected knowledge. There was a consequence to this. It broke Jesus' heart. Everything was there. Let's talk about these four Messianic miracles real quick. There was four that basically, according to rabbinic tradition, it went like this. The cleansing of a leper, casting out of a deaf and dumb spirit, the healing of a birth defect, and raising the dead after three days. The reason they believed the cleansing of a leper was something because there was never any circumstance where an Israelite was healed of leprosy. In fact, they believed it was the hand of God upon them for sin that they had performed. Thus, when Messiah came, only he could do that to take away what God had done. The second part was the casting out of a deaf and dumb spirit because the Jewish practice of exorcism was that they had to get the name of the spirit in order to exorcise the demon. And so if they couldn't speak and it couldn't hear, thus you couldn't exorcise it, okay? And of course, Jesus does that. Then the healing of birth defects. We got the story of the man born blind. And remember, I said as, as these were being performed, their, the job was the Sanhedrin. The nation of Israel had to declare that Messiah was here. And so it would be reported the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees were in charge of that, the Pharisees would begin to investigate, there were two parts of the investigation. I don't know if I said that last week, there's two parts of the investigation. The first part, they sit back and watch, they say nothing. The second part, they begin to ask questions. So if you wonder why the Pharisees were always hanging around, that's why. It wasn't because they were enjoying what Jesus was saying. But we see with the man born blind, where they're like, well, are you sure you were born blind? And they question his parents, and the parents are like, he's an adult, ask him. We know that he was blind, we know that he sees, but you ask him because they were afraid they were going to get put out of uh, the synagogue. And so we watched that happen, of course, the raising of the dead after three days. And you notice the part in John where it talks about Lazarus, it specifically mentions the fourth day twice because they believed that the spirit of man resided with the man, but on day four, the decomposition had gotten so vast, I guess, is that the uh, face of the man began to rot, for lack of a better term, and they no longer recognized him, so the spirit would depart from the body. Prior to that, they could be resurrected from the dead, but not on day four. And remember what they said when Jesus said, move the stone? They're like, no, 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 he stinketh by now. And Jesus wept in that whole thing. You see, these were all signs that Jesus was Messiah, that Messiah had come, that all of these things were happening. And so, should they have seen it? Should they have recognized it? Between the birth story and everything that took place, should they have recognized him? Yes, but they rejected knowledge. Because what had happened? They had taken some attributes of God and created a God in their image, and that God will match what we think, and therefore that can't be Messiah because he doesn't agree with us. And that's where we are today. Nothing has changed. You see, we're looking at the aspect, is God the healer? That's really where we're focusing our attention on, healing. Because it's a pivotal thing. Do I want all people to be healed? Absolutely. Do I believe that it is God's will to heal all? Absolutely. Do we see all get healed? Absolutely not. 
does that mean it's not God's will? We'll begin to drill into this a little bit more. But we're focused here. Now, here's the thing. I want to read you Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Let me ask you a question, okay? This is a tough one, all right? So if you need to stretch, now's your chance. I'll give you just a second. Is that passage true? Well, of course it is. Why? Well, God said it. Well, this is David writing this down. He says, bless the Lord and forget not his benefits. What are the benefits of God? You could say the benefits are also his attributes. He forgives all your iniquities. Oh, yes, he does. God is good no matter where you've been in life. God will forgive you because he loves you how you are. You come to him. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. He will forgive all your sins. He heals all your diseases. Well, if it's his will, and you've gotten those sins out of your life, he might. He redeems your life from destruction. Yes, he does. You're going to spend eternity with him. He crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Well, yes, but we'll throw those crowns at his feet. I mean, you see what we do. We're like, oh, yeah, one of these things is not like the other. We cast it out. The thing is, is this is either true or it's not. There is no in-between, and your opinion on it is irrelevant. Okay? That's fair. The thing is, is that according to David, he heals all your diseases. Which ones? All of them. How many? All of them. Is there any left out? I don't know. Last time I checked in Hebrew, all meant all. I don't think he left anything out there. And this is underneath a different covenant, which is even more interesting. It's almost like the character of God as the healer did not change once Jesus got on the earth. What do we do with that? You see, when we look at the attributes of God, we begin to create. We, think we like this part and we like that part. We don't like the justice part. We don't like the judge part. But we like the mercy and we like the forgiveness. And so we'll just go with that God. We saw that recently. Did you see that prayer by the Missouri senator or whatever he is? You know, we pray to the God of something and the God of Allah and some Hindu God. Amen and a woman. Because, you know, obviously, amen, which means so be it, has gender terms I'm unfamiliar with. But, I mean, what kind of idiocy is that? Does he not know better, or is he rejecting knowledge? Reality is, is if we don't believe what God says, then we have rejected knowledge. So, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As we get into this a little bit more today, we're just kind of laying a foundation here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Moreover, brethren... I don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, I went in depth on this, and if you haven't heard that before, see me afterwards, I'll explain this. This has to do with the three baptisms in, in Scripture and all that other stuff. Verse 6, now these things became our examples. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down and ate, eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. So what did he just tell? Tell us. Paul is laying this out. All right, just understand. All of these things were written down for you. 
so that you could learn from them and not repeat. Now they repeated and repeated and repeated, but they, weren't, they didn't have to. But were these written down to them or for them? For them. All of these things are written for our admonition. They happened to them so that we could see this. You see, the other problem we have with Scripture is we read it as if it's written to us. There's a problem with that. It wasn't. Were you a part of the Corinthian church? No. So it wasn't written to you, but it was written for you. Look at another one, Romans chapter 15, verse 1. Romans 15, verse 1. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we might, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort uh, grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, did we write patient on there? We didn't write patient on there. Did we write comforting on there? We didn't. And those are usually two givens. Like those are some of the first ones we come up with. But what do we see? Whatever things were written before, does this qualify? It's written before. Were written for our learning that through patience and comfort of the scriptures we might have hope. Where do we find hope? Where do we find comfort? Where do we find patience? It's right here. Why? Because this tells us who God is. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith, which is rooted and grounded in this, because he who promised is faithful. It all leads back to this. The problem is, is we have, we have just really ransacked this thing and ripped pages out and passages out. And it says, judge not, so don't judge. But wait a minute, God judges. Jesus throughout that entire chapter, he's pretty judgmental. He didn't get the message. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've heard this or not, but there was a, a lawsuit that came about the separation of church and state. And if you've ever read that letter, it's a four-page letter that was written by Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptist in 1801 because they had sent him a letter and he was responding to him after he became president. And they were concerned because at that time, Baptists weren't looked super favorably upon. It was kind of a new denomination. And so they wanted to make sure that the government was going to say, no, you got to be Methodist, or no, you got to be Episcopalian, or whatever. Pick, pick whichever flavor you like. And he says, no, 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 no. You don't have to worry about that, because there's a wall of separation between church and state. Because if you look at the Second Amendment, you notice that there is no word of wall, separation, or church, or state mentioned there. But he's like, you don't have to worry about that. They can't come after you. And now we have lifted that out of context and put it in this context and you know we, we we've really ruined that 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 part of the letter but here's the thing there was a lawsuit that happened and a guy brought in the entirety of the letter now you would think most people say read that in context oh that's what he meant but a lot of judges have looked at that and says well i know that's what you said but let me tell you what you meant right i mean we we do it to one another like if you're married you understand men okay and so what the judge says, like, well, this tells me one of two things. Either they're lying or the founding fathers did not understand what the separation of church and state meant. Okay, then. How dumb can you be and still breathe? Right? That's ludicrous. The guy who wrote it. Frankly, Thomas Jefferson wasn't even there when it was ratified or anything. Like he had nothing to do with that part, but, but be that as it may. And what do we do with God? We do the same thing. 
we do the exact same thing. So we see that these things were written down for our benefit, that we can learn from them, that through patient and comfort of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Because instead of looking at God, we begin to look at His attributes. We pick the ones we like. We take everything about Him for granted. We just take the parts that we want. You know what we call those in the real world? Teenagers. They love it when you give them, you feed them, you clothe them, buy them an Xbox. All of They love you for that. They don't love it when their grades aren't good and you get on to them about them. They don't love it when they hit their sister and, and you ground them. And they don't love it when you take their keys away. That's basically what we have done to God. We don't want all of God. We want part of God. We want the parts that we like. So let's, this brings us to this passage here. Isaiah chapter 53 in verse 4. This is part of the Messianic prophecy. It says, surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. There is more debate on this passage than probably you would ever understand. Because the word there, griefs, if you look it up, it literally translates as sickness. Surely he has borne our griefs, our sicknesses, and he carried our sorrows. This context, you see the entire passage talking about Messiah when He comes and all of that. We know that Messiah has come. We know that, uh, that, that He died on the cross. And we know that all of that was fulfilled. The question comes down to, and this is New King James that I'm, I'm quoting you from, is that true? Did He bear our sicknesses? That's what we've got to begin to look at. Because what we're going to begin to do is look at this passage, see if that's true, then what can our expectations be? But most importantly, as we did last week and the week before, is what was the expectation when Messiah came? Did he come with healing as part of the work that he was going to do? Now, you can say, well, sure he did because he healed a lot of people. But that's not the point. My point being is that did the Jews expect when Jesus came, and I say Jesus, but when Messiah came, that he would be a healer? that's very important to understanding the mission that he came with. Now, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. The answer is yes. But if I ask you, leaving this verse out, to go through the Old Testament to get an understanding of what the Jews were expecting Messiah and Messiah healing people's physical ailments, I bet most of us would have a hard time digging through that because it's not apparent. But what we can do is we can look at the response of the individuals in the New Testament to get a glimpse into their understanding of the old. As you read like Matthew, and he says, Jesus did this so that it would be fulfilled. And there's some Old Testament passage. And if you go back and you read that, you're like, what? How did you come to that conclusion? Well, the thing is, is he's telling us that this was a fulfillment. And a lot of times you read that, you're like, well, what does that have to do with that time, but that's how they saw it, and that matters. We're going to look at one of those examples today. Now, I'm going to teach something today I've taught before, so for some of you, this is going to be review. That's never a bad thing, but for some of you, this is going to be brand new. We're going to deal with the woman with the issue of blood. We're going to go through this in depth. We're going to look at all three times that this is mentioned in the Gospels, and we're going to break this down. The first one we're going to look at is Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 41. It says, Behold, there came a man named Jairus, And he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at uh, Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he uh, he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So he's coming to him looking for healing, right? Now, is that because he thought that when Messiah came, he was going to bring healing? We don't know, but we know that Jesus had been healing. So if nothing else, word got around, hey, if anybody can do it, it's this guy. 
Okay? So we'll leave that one out. But, as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Verse 43, now a woman, having a flow of blood for 12 years, who has spent all her livelihood on physicians, could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment. And immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, who touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said to those in him, uh, with him said, Master, the multitude throng and press you, and you say, Who touched me? But Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I perceive power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him, and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now this is a great story. And it's a great story because of the outcome. And when we listen to this, we begin to look at, like, the stories of how we've been told of what was happening here. You know, essentially, what is the crux of this story? We know that Jesus is the healer. That's given. But this woman had such strong faith that nothing would stop her from getting to God. And frankly, that's how we need to be. Nothing should stand our way in our way to getting to God. And that had she gotten in there close, maybe she could just reach the hem of a garment. Just knew if I could just get in his presence and touch any part of him, even just the hem, then I would be healed. And what does Jesus say? Your faith has made you whole. He could have, she could have touched his head. Could have touched his nose. Could have touched his elbow. But her faith was there. That preaches good, doesn't it? The problem is it's not true. You see, we have to break this down a little bit more. Her faith made her whole. But was her faith in healing or the healer? Because there was something unique about Jesus that she recognized. Now, you see some things here. You got the woman, she had a flow of blood for 12 years. So she's been sick for a while, right? 12 years. She's broke. Why? She gave everything she had to the doctors. There was nothing left and they couldn't heal her. So now it is physically impossible. There is no hope. We've done everything we know to do. We can't do anything for you. So she knew that if she came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. I'll put sick. She was broke. So she couldn't buy the miracle is the point I'm trying to make. But if she just touched the hem of his garment, all will be solved. And it was. Jesus said, your faith has made you whole, right? Touch the hem, she gets healed because of her faith. Fair? Let's look at Mark. Mark chapter 5, verse 25. Mark 5, 25. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years, had suffered many things from many physicians. So apparently those doctor's visits weren't very nice. She had spent all that she had and was no better. Rather, she grew worse. So she was going downhill. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Now this is interesting. It, we get a little bit more. When she heard about Jesus... What did she hear about Jesus that made her believe that this was true? Was it the fact that he had been healing people? Maybe, but why the him? See, that's fascinating to me. Should be you too. 
Verse 29, immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said to him, you see the multitude thronging you and you say, who touched me? Oh, he said, who touched my clothes? I think I skipped that part. He looked around to see her and he who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So we get a little bit more detail here. So this, again, it's beginning to get interesting. Here's the thing. Why was she fearing this? A good thing has taken place. She was never supposed to be there. Because what made somebody unclean? Blood. And so her uncleanness, every person that she touched to get through, including Jesus, she made unclean. But immediately, like that, it dried up. Why? Well, she had faith. Let's go on to Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus rode and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, said, Be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. So this is great. We see a confirmation of it. It's all over the, 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 the place. Basically, this woman knew that if she could just simply touch Jesus, touch the hem of his garment, that's where her faith was, that because of that, she put her faith in this random object that Jesus could make her whole. But that's not what happened. That is what's taught. You see, the key there is the hem. And this is where we miss it. Because we've heard this and read this so many times that we never stop to dig in and say, why was she afraid? Why was she like, what, what about the hymn? What about all of this stuff? Like, why your faith? Your faith in what? Touching the hymn? Therefore, just go touch people's hymns. You want to be healed? Come touch my pant leg, I guess. I don't know. Well, it comes down to the Greek word for hymn, which is the word kraspadon. I don't know that I'm pronouncing that correctly, so forgive me. But it means the hymn, the border edge, the border, or tassel. And in Numbers chapter 15, verse 38, you see this. Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garment throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. So what was the point of these tassels? They were to remind them of the commandments. So Okay, what? Well, what are these? Well, these are known as zitzits. I've got a picture of them here. You see those white things hanging off them? This is kind of how they wear them today. They'll hang them at the base of the shirt. You'll see people wear them around their, the belt loops on their pants. They wear four of them, one on each corner. They're called zitzits. And they were to remind them to keep the commandments. Okay, well, how does that remind you to keep the commandments? Well, you guys remember like years ago, they used to tie like things around their strings around their finger to remind them that maybe that's what it is. Well, actually, it's a lot deeper than that. It comes down to the tetragrammaton. And the tetragrammaton is this. Every letter is associated with the number. Every letter in the Hebrew uh, uh, alphabet. And so when you add these up for zitzit, it comes to 600, I think, something like that. But then you take these. There are eight individual strands with five knots. Eight plus five, for you public schoolers, is 13. You have 600 and 13. How many Levitical laws were there? 
613. So this is how they knew to remind them of the commandments. Now, I don't want to go into all the details, the blue threads and all that kind of stuff. That's irrelevant for what we're talking about today. But just understand that, that every rabbi certainly would have had these either on their person or this is known as a talit. It's a prayer shawl. And they would wear these as they were praying. We see this used in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 24. Look at this. Verse 1. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following in the Philistines that it was told him, saying, take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men of the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the roads where there was a cave, and Saul went to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. He was going to the bathroom, if you don't know what that means. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. Now I'm going to stop here. Because what did his friends tell him? Here's Saul. The fulfillment of the prophecy is before you. Kill the guy. So what does David do? He arose and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, and stretch out my hand against him, seeing that he is anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got, caught, uh, caught, got up from the cave and went on his way. You see, he cut off the hem of his garment in which he found the authority of the king. He acted out of his flesh and the recommendation of his friends based off a prophecy that was had, but he acted out of line. So this is where you see this come into play. Now, what about these? In Numbers chapter 15, verse 38, it says, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generation to put a blue thread in the tassel of the corner and you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them and you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined that you may remember to do all of my commandments and for your holy God. Now, today, they, they still wear some of those on their, on their person but they'll also have them on these prayer shawls. And they will wear it like this. And you've seen this. If you've seen the pictures in Jerusalem and stuff, they'll wear it. Some people here in America do it. It doesn't really matter. But it was to remind them, as they're praying, we keep the commandments. It keeps them on them at all times. Why? They're being conscious about the things of God. The, I mean, what was the consequence of not keeping the 613 commandments? You've now broken the covenant, right? So they didn't want to do that. And so the, every time they looked upon these, they were, it reminded them of God's commands, and we keep them. Now, what we see here is the word tassel. Because that's what in Greek we saw, but now we want to know what it means in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the word tassel is the word kanap. It literally means tassel. It is referencing these things here. Well, why does that matter? Well, it's also translated as the word wings. And you see this in Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God in him I will trust. Surely he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. And you shall cover, uh, he shall cover you with his feathers. And under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. So, wings. Well, that's interesting. Because like they'll wear their prayer shawls like this. This is going into the prayer closet. It's them and God. They're underneath the wings of the Almighty, and here they're protected. Now, don't think of it physically, but think of it spiritually speaking. You know, if you come up and bash one in the back of the head, it's not a helmet, all right? 
But spiritually speaking, they are putting themselves under God. And so when they go into their prayer closet, that's where they go. So if you thought you needed a room in your house, you don't. You don't even need this. You can have one if you like. I kind of like mine. I wish it was Nebraska red, but that's irrelevant. So we see the word wings here. Well, why does that matter? Well, there's something interesting in a prophecy by Malachi about Messiah. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise. Son of Righteousness is one of the many names of Messiah, the bright and morning star. And where is he coming? With healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. Where was the healing? Now let's go read Mark chapter 5 again. Now a certain woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians, she spent all that she had and was no better. She grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. She said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. If only I may touch the hem of his garment. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed. And fast forward, it says, your daughter, your faith has made you well. Faith in what? In the promises of God. When Messiah comes, he comes with healing in his wings. This wasn't abstract. When she heard about Jesus, that means she accepted him. This is the Messiah. Micah said, when Messiah comes, he'll have healing in his wings. If only I may touch the tassels of his garment. You guys see how powerful that is? For so long, we've taught it haphazardly because we don't do our homework and we've just accepted it as truth. My people perish for a lack of knowledge. The knowledge was there, but we reject it by not digging. It's even more powerful when you realize that she recognized him as Messiah. Did they expect when Messiah came, he would bring healing in his wings? Absolutely. That's why she did that. But you may not realize that she wasn't alone. Go down a little bit from uh, Mark 5 to Mark 6, verse 56. Wherever he entered into villages, cities of the country, they laid the sick in the marketplace and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. You see, they all knew the prophecy. Now let me ask you this. Was what the words that Micah said, or Malachi, I keep saying Micah. Malachi, is what he said true? Absolutely. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Their faith wasn't in healing. They had put their faith in Messiah. Messiah was fulfilling his promise. You guys see that? That matters. Because what was the expectation of Messiah? He's coming with healing. So now we look at Isaiah 53 verse 4. We're not going back there. But we'll keep that in mind going forward. Because it matters. You see, it's either true or it's not. There is no in-between. You can have two different statements made, and they can both be wrong, but they can't both be right. There has to be a difference. We've got to get back to the Word. We've got to quit allowing ourselves to be moved by anything that doesn't line up with Scripture. We, without wavering, put our faith in God. 